As Christians, we seek to live in obedience to God's commands and principles which are found in the Bible. And perhaps one of our biggest challenges as Christians is to know how to apply those particular commands and principles. It's a challenge, isn't it? Because the Bible tells us to glorify God. But what does glorifying God look like if you're the groundsman at Gateway Senior School? Does it mean that you have to mow I love God into the, into the law? You can laugh if you want. It was my little joke for the day. Um, <laughs> you need to encourage me, otherwise I won't carry <laughs> on to it anymore. Um, and so, this idea of trying to apply things that we find in the Bible, what does it look like to speak the truth in love? How do I speak the truth in love to my work colleague? How do I speak the truth in love to my wife? To my two-year-old toddler? And thank the Lord, He's given us His Holy Spirit who acts as a counselor inside of us to help us to know how to apply the truth. But He also works to a very large extent through the family, through the body of Christ. That's why we meet in small groups, because we read the Bible and we say, well, what does it mean to apply this particular truth? And some of these truths and these commands, we could tease them out and almost write an entire library on how to speak the truth in love. So that's what I would like to do today, is to tease this out a little bit. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? How do we do that? What does it actually look like? And I've read a book about three or four years ago entitled Crucial Conversations, and essentially this book is about how to speak the truth in love. Now, I'm not going to be talking to you about some principles today that don't mean anything to me. I want to talk about something which has had a huge transformative effect on my life and on my relationships, and which I can believe, I believe can have a transformative effect on your life as well, and help you to speak the truth in love. And it's all based on what I'm going to talk about today, full credit to this book on Crucial Conversations, but I have made it my own as well. So what is a crucial conversation? I'd like to paint a little bit of a a background for you. My brother and I have three cousins. We have a cousin in Switzerland called Roland. Unfortunately, we don't share a common language, so it's been quite hard to get to know him well. Then we have another two cousins, brother and sister, called Jean and Mike, Jean and John Michael. They grew up in East London. And we got to know Jean and John Michael very well, because our families would often have holidays together, we'd go down to the Eastern Cape and we'd spend time together. Uh, I learned to to windsurf with my cousins. We would spend literally weeks on end windsurfing down in the Eastern Cape with our cousins playing table tennis with them, going out to the movies. And I grew very fond of uh, Jean and and John Michael. Unfortunately, Jean ended up taking a bit of a wrong path in life. She ended up as a sort of a hippie type for many years. She'd drive around South Africa in an old beat-up bucky with a canopy on the back with her boyfriend, and they would just kind of hang out and camp wherever they felt like it. They got into drugs. And I wanted to keep the communications with Jean open, and I wanted to keep the relationship strong because I was concerned about her. Fast forward now, girl and I meet, we get married, uh, we're starting to live happily ever after. Another joke. Uh, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and about, I don't know, I suppose about three or four years into our marriage, you might need to help me with this girl. 
Um, we decided that it would be really great to go down and have a holiday on the coast, just the two of us, because we knew that children were going to be on the way shortly. And so we wanted to have time, just the two of us, beach cottage down on the coast. You can imagine, wonderful, wonderful as we thought about it. So I approached my aunt and uncle, the parents of Jean and John Michael, and asked if we could use their beach cottage in a place called Morgan Bay, which was just about 75 k's north of East London. So we set off on our journey. It's a long drive, over 2,000 k's. We finally drove up to the cottage. The door opened, and out came my cousin Jean with her boyfriend. Unbeknownst to her parents, and unbeknownst to us, she had taken up residence in the holiday cottage because it seemed like a convenient place to be. And she was so chuffed to see us. <laughs> She's like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, you know, Ian and Cloud, you've come, come to join us. You know what? We'll, we'll move out of, the, we'll move, move out of the, the, the main bedroom so that we can have the main bedroom. It'd be so nice to spend a couple of weeks with you. <laughs> and we are thinking, uh-uh. <laughs> this is a seriously crucial issue which is going to give rise to a seriously crucial conversation. And this is what a, con a crucial conversation is like. It's a conversation in which the stakes are high. You can imagine that the stakes are high because I don't want to ruin my relationship with my cousin Jean. I want to keep the communications open. But by the same token, I want to enjoy my holiday. And more importantly than all of that, I don't want to be compromising um, what Gail was looking forward to. So there's a, there's a lot at stake. My relationship with my cousin, my relationship with my wife, my holiday, then the other thing about a crucial conversation is that opinions vary. Jean and her boyfriend were quite happy to share the cottage with us. They were quite happy to eat our food <laughs> and spend time with us. And so they were happy, but we were not happy. We were poles apart in terms of our opinion. And then emotions were likely to start running strong. And I can tell you something that at that moment the adrenaline was pumping in my system when I realized that I was going to have to try and solve this particular problem. And we, we face these crucial conversations all the time in life. And the key to solving them is to speak the truth in love. So we're going to have a look at how do we actually do that. Just think of some of the crucial conversations that maybe you've had, maybe um, talking about sex with your wife, Maybe it's about approaching a friend who hasn't paid you back on a loan. Maybe it's about talking to your 14-year-old daughter about how much time she's spending on Facebook. All of these are crucial conversations. There's lots of them in life. So how do we handle them? And I'd like to just present four different scenarios that I've observed. The first one is that we retreat into silence. So we avoid the issue. We don't do anything about it. We don't talk about it. The problem is, though, that we start to act it out. We don't say what we're feeling, but we do start to act out what we're feeling. Crossing our arms, turning away in that situation. But what happens is we tend to withdraw from people, or we resort to schmide humor, or we try and get the message across through somebody else, and we retreat into silence. And what happens is that relationships which are significant and which should remain close, we start to get distance in those relationships. There's a barrier that starts to build. A barrier of resentment. A barrier of a lack of forgiveness. A barrier of anger. And we don't want that to happen. We don't want to happen 
that to happen between us and significant people. Maybe me and my parents, or me and my wife, or me and my children, or our family here at church, maybe the, the ministry team that you're a part of. Maybe there's something going on in the ministry team. Someone's doing something that you don't like. Retreat into silence. You'll start acting it out. People will start to pick up that there's something wrong, but they won't know what it is. And you'll start to withdraw from that person. We don't want that to happen in the body of Christ. This is a place where we work for peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is a place where we work for unity. Because the world needs to see something different here. So that's the first scenario. You retreat into silence. The second scenario is that you resort to violence. It's either the fight or the flight, isn't it? And if you ever come across a situation where you're in a meeting, and usually it's the boss, suddenly you realize that everybody else is silent and the boss is just lecturing. And he's pointing his finger, and he's raised his voice, and he's starting to use new messages, and he's starting to exaggerate. You always do overspend the budget. You never do X, Y, and Z. If you come across that, that's when people are starting to resort to violence in a conversation. And that doesn't work either. A third scenario, so we retreat into silence or we resort to violence. The third scenario is that we start bringing other people into the equation. We start what I call a triangulating. So it's me and Gail, but then I bring Dennis into the equation. So I go and start talking to Dennis about something that I have a problem with, with Gail. And that's not right, folks. We should never do that. What does it say in Matthew 18? If you read Matthew 18, the principle there is always go and speak to the person that you have the issue with first. Go and speak to them one-on-one. -on -one. And then there's various other things that can happen if that doesn't work out. But so often, and we'll do it from the wrong motives, I'll go and chat to Tony about give more. Because I'm going to get some Tony on, on my side. But the sad thing is that I'll start talking to Tony about give more. Tony will start taking on some of the bitter and anger that I feel. Now there's a barrier starting to develop between Tony and give more. This is not right. Look at what Paul says about this. He says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he starts to list the people who are wicked. And some of them you would say, yeah, those are perhaps wicked. Sexually immoral, idolaters, male prostitutes, sounds pretty wicked to me. Homosexual, thieves, greedy. Mm, that's how to get a little bit closer, isn't it? To us. Drunkards, slanderers. You know what I mean? If I, if I go to Tony and he say, you know what, Givemore didn't come on time to a meeting. He doesn't respect me. He hasn't got respect for other people's time. Is that necessarily the truth? And I'm starting to, to say that to Tony, and I'm starting to gossip, and I'm actually starting to slander Givemore, because I'm starting to say things that may well not be true. And we can't have this happening in the body of Christ. So that's the third scenario. We go to someone else. The fourth scenario is that we face the issue properly and we handle it well. But how often does that happen, folks? <laughs> You've probably got flicking across the screen of your mind at the moment a whole load of things that you tackled but you didn't necessarily handle it well. And that's because we often do our worst when it matters the most. Have you noticed that? For the people that it matters the most for, we often do our worst. And part of it is design, you know. There's a physiological reaction that happens 
when we start entering into a crucial conversation, when I, when I see my cousin coming out of the door and I realize what's happening, I get a shot of adrenaline into my system, which is, is it's a primitive reaction that either prepares you to fight or to run away. But what it means is that all the blood is going to your essential organs and it's not going to your brain, so you're not thinking straight. And on top of that, you're feeling stumped. You're feeling under pressure. Well, what on earth am I going to do? I actually don't know what to do here. What, how am I going to sort things out? And we've often learned, this is another thing, we've learned self-defeating behavior from our parents or we've developed it ourselves over the years. So maybe you're the kind of person who just, no way, no, it's, I'm never going to have an argument. My parents always used to argue, so I'm never going to have an argument. I'm never going to talk. And you start to resort to that kind of behavior of going into silence and trying to figure out another way to solve this problem so that you don't have to have an argument. So we learn these things. So what is the key then to handling these crucial conversations and speaking the truth in love? And the key to it is dialogue. That's why Paul says, speak the truth in love. If I'm starting to struggle with the fact this would never happen, um, that Gail isn't washing the dishes enough, <laughs> it'll be the other way around. But if, you know, if, if wives, you're saying, you know, if my husband loved me, then he would know to wash the dishes, even if I didn't have to ask him. No, let's not play mind games. You know, our, our, our husbands love us, our wives love us. Let's treat them with respect and speak the truth in love. If we need something, let's ask for it. And train them up in the way that they should go. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the key to mastering crucial conversations, it's dialogue. And I'd like to try and just explain this a little bit more. Um, what is dialogue? It's the free flow of meaning between two or more people. And now let me give you a picture of this. If I have a particular issue in my life, some issue that I'm dealing with, I will have a pool of meaning concerning that issue. And so inside of that pool of meaning, I'll have things like opinions, I'll have facts, I'll have feelings, I'll have information, I'll have thoughts. All of these things in my pool of meaning. And then all of that pool of meaning will drive the way I act and it will inform me. Now the thing about a crucial conversation, folks, is that if Rafe and I have an issue that we're dealing with and it's a crucial conversation, Rafe will have his pool of meaning and I will have my pool of meaning. We won't necessarily share a common pool of meaning because opinions differ. And so what we want to do in dialogue is to make sure that my pool of meaning is emptied out into a common pool of meaning and that race is also emptied out into the same pool. Now, the goal of this and the goal of dialogue is to understand. And this is crucially important because when Rafe is talking, he might start saying some things that I disagree with. But at that point in the conversation, we are aiming towards dialogue. I'm seeking to understand him, not to argue with him. I'm, I'm, we're wanting to have a scenario where all the thoughts, all the ideas, all the theories are into that common pool of meaning. But what tends to happen, two things can happen. Either one person can start force, forcing their meaning into the pool, 
And this is uh, a typical picture of this is a, a parent talking to a teenage child. The teenage child feels in a position of powerlessness. The, the, the parent has authority, and before long it turns into a lecture. And so all we're hearing is the parent forcing their meaning into the common pool. We're not hearing anything from the teenager. And that's the other thing. That's the other difficulty is that if you have one person who's withholding, who's gone into silence, then it will also prevent this free flow of meaning, this dialogue. Why do we want to have that common pool? Well, it's because it's the birthplace of synergy. Synergy just means multiplication or fruitfulness. If we want to have um, something that is greater than the sum of the parts, we, let's aim for synergy. And you know, if we get everybody's opinions and ideas and facts into the pool, we're going to make better choices. Because who's to say that Gareth doesn't have some information that I don't have? I'll make a better choice if we get it all into the common pool of meaning. We're that much more likely to be unified once we've made a decision, and we're that much more likely to be convicted that this is the right decision and to go for it. But if one person has just forced their meaning into the pool and made a decision, it doesn't work. Good. So this is what we need to aim for. And I think that, according to the book, that, and, I, and I've seen this in life as well, Perhaps the biggest obstruction to this happening, dialogue, is what we call the fool's choice. What is a fool's choice? And this is really interesting. A fool's choice is when we force ourselves to choose between two bad alternatives. So in other words, Grandma uh, spends the whole morning baking some biscuits for you. Okay? And you arrive to visit, and she says, you know, I've just spent the whole morning baking these biscuits. They're very special biscuits. I really hope you'll like them. She gives you one, take a bite. Don't like it. So then you think to yourself, what am I going to do? I've got two alternatives. Either I speak up and I hurt Grandma, or I keep quiet. She assumes that these will be my favorite biscuits, and I'll end up eating them every time I go and visit for the rest of my life. That's a fool's choice. It's trying to choose between two bad alternatives. In the case of my cousin, it's saying, well, either I speak up and spoil the relationship with my cousin, I won't have any opportunity to influence her for the gospel in the future, or I don't speak up and I suffer and we have a miserable holiday. You know, why, how would that ever move you towards having a, a crucial conversation? It wouldn't. It would prevent you from going and entering into dialogue. So how do we get beyond that? How do we get beyond the fool's choice and to that place where we communicate with one another? First thing that we need to do is we just need to start with our own hearts. What is it that's motivating me? What is motivating me towards having this discussion with someone else? Am I doing it because I want to punish them? Am I doing it because I want to have a win lose situation, where I win and they lose, what is my motive? Am I withdrawing from, from handling this issue for the sake of peace, which isn't a real peace? What's going on in my heart? Focus on what you really want. So in the scenario with my cousin, I'm like, I want to honour and respect my wife. I want to have a good holiday with just the two of us, because that's what we'd aim for. 
Um, but I also don't want to, to mess up the relationship with my, my cousin. And so what we need to do is once we've clarified well, what, what is motivating us and sifting out the bad motivators, making sure that our hearts are right before God, once we've focused on what we really want, then we need to search for the and. So you say to yourself, well, clarify what, is, what it is that I don't want and what it is that I do want, and then ask my brain to start working out, looking for some healthy options to bring me to dialogue. And so in the case of my cousin, it's like I don't want to mess up my relationship with my cousin. I do want to have a holiday alone with my wife. What can I do to sort that out? Because now I'm presenting myself with a way out. I'm not presenting myself with a fool's choice that causes me to remain stuck. So that's the first one. Start with your heart. Then the next thing that we need to recognize is the importance of safety. Safety gives the green light for dialogue to happen. Now there's a few conditions of safety. Making sure that we have the same purpose and making sure that we respect each other. Let me just talk about that, the purpose one, first of all. Mutual purpose. Does the other person believe that you care about their goals? Remember, we're speaking the truth in love. If I'm loving somebody else, then I'm looking out for their interests and for their goals. And does the other person believe that? Do they trust your motives? Conversations go awry not because people dislike the content, but because they suspect malicious intent. Isn't that a good quote? Conversations go awry not because people dislike the content, but because they suspect malicious intent. So how can we build this safety? Well, the first thing is that if you have in some way violated a person's respect, you have treated them disrespectfully, then you need to apologize for doing that. Let me give you an example. My maid... Uh, starts to come a little bit late to work. Every day she's about five or ten minutes late in the morning and in the afternoon after lunch. And so I don't talk about it and then suddenly one day I just blow my top and say, you're always arriving late and shout at her. Now I want to go back and handle the conversation properly because that hasn't achieved anything. When I go back, the first thing I need to do is to apologize for shouting. Maybe it's the same with a parent and a child. Maybe you handled it badly with your child. First thing you need to do to establish safety, because that person is still feeling hurt, the person is still feeling resentful. There's no ways you're going to have free flow of dialogue until you've apologized. Another thing that you can do is to contrast to fix misunderstanding. So you know this whole thing about, well, what is, what is this really about? What is the motive behind what this person is saying to you? So for example, with my maid, if I were to, to say to her, um, you're, you're arriving late to work, uh, and I've got a problem with that, the first thing that she's going to be thinking is, I wonder why Ian is saying this. I wonder why the boss is saying this to me. Maybe he's unhappy with my work. Maybe this is the first step in getting me fired. Maybe he wants to get rid of me. But she's feeling a little bit insecure. 
And that often happens when you're having a conversation where one person has power and the other person doesn't. And that's when you need to con contrast to fix that, to show that you have a common purpose. So what I would do in that situation is I would say, um, Sophie, I'd just like to have a little bit of a chat to you. It's nothing big. Uh, I, I have no problem with the quality of your work. Your work is brilliant. I really enjoy the way you relate to us and the way you relate to the kids. I do have a problem with the fact that you're arriving five or ten minutes late to work. Can you see the contrasting? This is, I'm not saying this, I'm not saying there's a problem with your work, I'm not saying that we dislike you, but I am saying that I have a problem with the fact that you're arriving late to work. Once again, it's speaking the truth in love, making sure that people understand the love, the, love, uh, the truth, and that the, the, the loving thing to do is to create it in a, in a place of safety. Creating safety, just, just be aware of this, folks. Um, if, for example, I'm wanting to chat to Matthew about the amount of time that he's spending on Facebook during, during um, his swatting break or whatever, I'm not going to say, Matthew, um, please come into my office and sit in front of my desk. Do you think he's going to feel safe <laughs> if I do that? He's not going to feel safe. I'll say, hey, Matthew, let's go and chuck a ball around the garden and you know, start throwing a tennis ball. And then while, whilst we're doing that, then I'll start bringing up some of my concerns. Just have in mind safety. And normally when people start to react, um, either in silence or violence, either they just clam up and they shut up altogether, or they're starting to you know, resort to violence, um, we mustn't react to that. What we must do is say, oh, okay, obviously safety is being compromised here, so what I need to do is kind of like step out of the conversation and uh, re-establish the safety. Is this person getting the wrong end of the stick? Are, are they misjudging my motives? That kind of thing. So we need to build or maintain safety. And then, the third thing, we're coming close to the end now, is we need to understand path to action. Now this is, this is fascinating, folks. What I'd like, I'd like you to think of this scenario. Suppose three guys, um, person A, B, and C, decide, they all agree together that they're going to meet at the bottom drawer at 9 o'clock on Thursday morning to discuss some business. Okay? So Thursday arrives, person A and person B get there, they, uh, they wait for person C, after 5 minutes he isn't there, after 10 minutes he isn't there, 15 minutes he isn't there, he doesn't ring up to say what's going on. Person A starts to get more and more angry and in the end he goes stomping off and drives back to his office. Person B, however, starts to get concerned. And in the end, he phones up person C to see if everything's okay. Can you see that you've got two people who are experiencing the same event, but they both are experiencing very different feelings which lead to different actions? And that's because it all has to do with the way we interpret the facts. What are the facts? We agreed to meet at 9 o'clock, bottom drawer, Thursday morning. It doesn't happen. Person C arrives, or well, it doesn't arrive. So person A starts telling himself the story. You know what? Person C just doesn't respect us. He doesn't respect our time. And that's how he starts to interpret. That's the story he starts telling himself. And he starts to feel frustrated and angry and disrespected. 
and in the end he stomps off and goes to his office. Person B, however, is telling himself, I wonder if there's another reason why he doesn't arrive late. You know, maybe his child was sick and he had to drop him off at the clinic and he was a bit delayed, or maybe he's had a car accident. And so he ends up ringing person C to see if everything's okay. So can you see that the way we interpret the facts, the way the story we tell ourselves leads to very different feelings and actions? Now this is so important, folks, because if we have a given set of facts, we can have as many stories interpreting those facts as there are people in the room. But what is the real truth? And what tends to happen is we tell ourselves a story without really knowing what the truth is, that doesn't move us towards dialogue and resolving the issue. So person A isn't likely to go and talk to person C because he's, he thinks that person C has disrespected him. And the sad thing is, talking the truth in love, person A may well go back to the office and start talking to people at the office and say, you know what, person C doesn't respect people. He, he didn't even pitch up to a meeting today. And he's starting to state his story as the truth. And that's where gossip and slander comes in. That can happen so often, folks. It happens amongst our church body. Um, it's ha- it happens in our lives. And so we need to go back to the facts, figure out what they are, figure out the story that we're telling ourselves, how much of this story is true and how much of it is just an interpretation. Is there another story? Is there another way of explaining these facts? a way that would be more likely to move me towards talking to that person and having a crucial conversation with them. And so this is just a little model of how you can handle that conversation. Bearing in mind some of the things that we've talked about, maintaining the safety and so on. The first thing that you do is you just share your facts. You know, person C, we agreed to meet at 9 o'clock at the bottom drawer, but by quarter past, you still hadn't arrived. So that's sharing the facts. What you might discover is that he's going to have some more facts to bring to the common pool of meaning. But the next thing that you do is you just tell a story. And you do that using I messages and you talk about your feelings. So you say, you didn't arrive on time and fact, you didn't call us. And so the story I was starting to tell myself was that you didn't respect our time. And it made me feel frustrated or angry or disrespected. And all the time that you're doing this, you're doing the way you do it is the last two. You talk tentatively and you encourage testing. So while you're busy talking, you're saying things like, it would seem to me, or the story I'm telling myself, you're doing it tentatively. You're not saying it as this is the absolute truth. I think you might not respect me. But help you to understand, is there something that I'm missing here? Encourage testing. And then you ask them for their path. And of course, it's, it's, a, it's a very trivial example. Um, but person C might say, well, you know, so I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I actually did get held up by the police. Um, I was busy, you know, negotiating with them. And I wasn't able to use my phone to call you. And suddenly that addition of that extra fact changes the whole complexion of the thing. So I would encourage you folks, um, if we are going to be a transformative church, that scripture in Ephesians, um, let me read it to you. 
So it says, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one body. And if we are members of one body, and we don't take the effort to resolve these issues in the way that the Bible has laid out for us to do, then we're not going to be one body. We're not going to be living out the reality of what Christ had intended. So it's so important for us. If something, if something happens, somebody does something that you don't understand, something that's inexplicable, um, and you're starting to tell stories that are leading to bad feelings, you're starting to withdraw from that person, then go and talk to them. That's what we need to do in our, in our body. We need to give one another the permission to talk to one another. And I would hope that if, if anybody has got any issue or question with me, that you would come and chat to me about it. And I would hope that you would accept it, that I could come and chat to you as well. We need to give each other permission to do this. Because this is what we do when we love each other. This is what we do when we care for one another. If there's something that's causing a barrier between me and Jackie, for example, then the caring thing for me to do is to go and chat to Jackie. Because this is a relationship that's important. I don't want there to be a barrier between me and my sister in Christ. So that's why I go and talk to her. And remember, when somebody comes and you realize that it's one of these crucial conversations, it can be quite scary when it happens. Um, you know, in our marriage, we, we have a verbal flag that we use. Can I share something with you? As soon as Gail says, can I share something with you, I know that there's a crucial conversation coming. Um, and I have to remind myself, this is going to feel like an attack, but actually it's not. This is a caring act. She's doing this not because she wants to attack me, but because she cares for me. And we need to give ourselves that permission here at Harvest as well. Shall we pray? Just as we, uh, as we wait quietly for a moment... Are there any crucial conversations that you need to be having with people? You know, if there's a can of worms, it's best that it does get opened up because you don't want the can full of worms. You want to get the worms out. You want to get the rottenness out. So, so if, there, if there are any crucial conversations that you need to have, um, would you make a commitment before the Lord? to start moving towards that. And let's give ourselves permission to, to make mistakes. You know, we won't necessarily get it right the first time, but that's okay, because our intention is to speak the truth in love, to move forward. So Father, I pray that you would um, just speak to each one of us, You've provided Holy Spirit to be in us, to be our counsellor, to be our guide. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide each one of us. Show us the way forward. Show us how to break out of the fool's choice um, so that we can build towards a unified body. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.